0: A quick introduction to my guest today, John Verveke, PhD, is an award-winning professor of psychology, cognitive science, and Buddhist psychology at the University of Toronto. John has greatly inspired me with his Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series on YouTube. And for most of you, he will not need an introduction at all. I had a really nice time chatting with John. I think we discussed a lot of topics that he had not fully discussed publicly yet. And I hope you guys will support John and his work. His channel is linked down below. And please enjoy this episode. Go. Welcome back to the channel, guys. Today I'm joined by John Vervicki, one man who needs no introduction on this channel, as most of you will be familiar with him. Uh, do you mind if I if I call you John? Please you have a please call me John. <laughs> i feel much more comfortable if you did. little <laughs> John and I, uh, we bit of a little bit of a little requested if he wanted to come on and he actually said yes. So that's been wonderful. And I'm glad to arrange it so quickly. Because I know that sometimes it can take much longer for something okay. like this to take hold. And um, yes, yeah, so, so I have a lot of questions. I've listened to your series as I told you offline multiple times. And it has brought me from initially, atheism closer to my religious roots, which is uh, Protestantism. My father is a theologian and he's always tried to bring me to that um, faith that he has um, oh. he's got more of an open faith let's say mm-hmm. so he's always been very helpful in that and he's never pushed me anywhere but you at least gave me the language to understand that tradition and ah. to see where the value comes from
1: yeah that's
0: that's cool glad to hear that yeah <laughs> so i had some experiences with meditation and and also psychedelics that got me to get some participatory understanding of yeah what i think is also nested inside of religious traditions and that made me understand that better and better i do still struggle with with parts of religion as i'm sure you do as well Mm -hmm. um but so yeah this has been an ongoing search and today i just had a bunch of questions to ask you and um Probably my best, Lucas. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll fire away with uh, non-theism, because this is right. a, a concept that you have, I think, popularized more or less. I don't know, where does its origin come from? I've seen it used here and there. I've seen related
1: terms like anatheism and other things like that, where people are trying to articulate uh, rejection of both theism and atheism because of a shared framework that is being rejected. I should say, though, that some atheists use the word non-theism as a synonym for atheism. That is not how I'm using it. I'm using it as as a term that sharply contrasts with both standard
0: uh, current conceptions of theism and atheism. That's great. I I have a longer question for my brother, who is a philosophy teacher. (laughs) So excuse excuse him for if it's a long question. That's Um, fine. He described it as polemic, perhaps too polemic, but I think it would be unfair to paraphrase him because I might not do a great job of that. <coughs> Please. You've characterized non-theism as a rejection of the shared presuppositions between the classical theist and the atheist, which would be that God is the supreme being, that God is accessed primarily or even solely through belief, mm-hmm. the focus on theology and anti-theology that do not require transformative anagoge and that sacredness is personal or impersonal. Mm -hmm. It seems to him that individuals such as DC Schindler and Jonathan Pagel also reject the above four presuppositions, but nonetheless characterize themselves as theists. Would you say that they are actually non-theists, like an opposite move to how Peterson says atheists aren't really atheists? That's the third question.
1: Yeah, no, that's fine, and uh, I I don't find it particularly polemical. I think it's a fair question, especially the fact that I have ongoing and uh, appreciative uh, relationships with David and with Jonathan, uh, D.C. Schindler, David. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, yeah, I would say that I make a distinction between classical theism Um, and current theism, which I think current theism, popular theism is very much the model uh, you just articulated. And I think that's also what popular atheism is directed against. I've never heard an atheist take up the challenge of refuting the Neoplatonic conception of the one or the Taoist conception of the Tao or anything like that. Um, Where I would perhaps still differ although i recently had a conversation with david and it went very interesting um but, but i think david is still a Thomist, and i think in the end thomas um thomas aquinas uh yeah. still holds to a substance metaphysics and um uh, that um, and i know people like uh uh popular theists like um uh, what's his name craig craig i think it is William. William Craig, I think it is, or something. Uh, God mm-hmm. above all, um, yeah. Yeah. very. Uh, that this is the idea that God has the properties finally of a substance. A substance is something that completely independently exists. Um, predicates are dependent on it. It's not dependent on any relations whatsoever. Um, and so, in, in the in the final analysis, it is a it is a kind of thing um, that exists on its own, independent of its relations. And if that is what they mean, and I don't know if Jonathan would mean that, because uh, James Filler in his astonishing book, um, Neoplatonism, Heidegger and the History of Being, argues that Eastern Orthodoxy is a rejection of substance metaphysics. Uh, And I know Bishop Maximus has said this is one of his criticisms of uh, of Augustine and of Aquinas that they still seem to be ha- holding on to a substance metaphysics. So this gets really sort of, my, and to some people it might sound like splitting hairs, but this is a very precise question. Um, and I think that in the end uh, what a non-theist is committed to is rejection of a, of a set of things that are interlocked together. A substance metaphysics, a nominalist epistemology, the idea that patterns are only in the mind. Jonathan would reject that too, I know, and so would David. Um, The idea that actuality has priority over potentiality, they're not somehow equally real. Um, And I think what follows from that is an implicit kind of dualism, because if patterns are only in the mind and not in the world, then mind and world are fundamentally different kinds of things. I reject all of those. In addition to the other things you mentioned, and I think that reality is in its ground ultimately relational. So the, the relationality comes before the things that are related. Relations are deeper and more real than the things that are related. To... So we normally think of the things and then the relations emerging between the things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I say, to, if your conception of God is still bound to that, then I still think you're a theist in a in a deep at a deep level. Whereas if you're a Zen Buddhist or a Taoist or a Vedantist, for example, uh, or a Neoplatonist, you would hold that it's the other way around. The relations are primary, and the things emerge out of it. And this would lead you to a view of God that in which God was inherently relational in nature, which mm. is a possibility given the idea of the Trinity, or that God is love or the God of God is life, um, or light, which are inherently relational uh, entities. And this would get you into something like Whitehead's process relational theology or um, uh, so, some variations on it. Now, the the, the strange thing is uh, is is Whitehead a theist? Well, he calls himself a, a panentheist mm-hmm. as a way of distinguishing himself from a theist. Um, so like these spin-ism. terms are getting yeah, like spin-o- not a pantheist, but a panentheist. Yeah, yeah, yeah like like Caracol- uh, Claire Carlyle argues, okay. and now the distinctions between the position I'm talking about and um, that, if that's what you mean by theism, then I don't know what the difference is. Here's one perhaps final point where I think I do differ from D.C. Schindler and Jonathan. I think the pluralism argument is puts a hole in sort of the final part of theism, which is the idea of some kind of es- exclusivity of understanding that Christianity has the best understanding of ultimate reality. Um, and where, and I, if that's what the theist is committed to, um, then I reject that as well. Um, and so this means rejecting all kinds of implicit things like a two worlds ontology, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. Lucas, that's a very hard question to
0: answer, but I tried to give you uh, as that's quickly great. as
1: I could an answer.
0: That's very good. I am wondering if... I myself, for example, can't call myself a religious person while also being a non-theist. For example, um, I don't view Christianity necessarily above other religions, also simply because I don't understand them very well. Like Vedicism, for example, I have a lot of respect for, from what I understand of it. Um, Does that go together? Is that even possible?
1: I think it's very. It depends what you mean by religious. If religious, you mean if, and this is the problem because the the history of the word religion, the idea of uh, there's a particular phenomenon, religion, is bound up with European colonialism, yeah, and, and also with the Abrahamic religions, as we put it, and mm-hmm. so. Get endless debates, um, and and they're not really resolvable. Is Buddhism a religion? Well, there's a profound sense of ultimate reality. There's a sense of sacredness. There are priests. There are temples. Uh, people go through uh, mystical experiences and profound transformations. Uh, they band together into communities of mutual support and moral codes. Um, that sort of sounds like a religion, but <laughs> there isn't a god. Uh, but you know, and so you go on and on and on. Um, and are those people religious? I think so. Um, I think the, the religion means a shared spirituality and uh, shared rituals and shared communities of practice and transformation. And there is a there is a a relationship to ultimate reality as something sacred to be pro- profoundly loved. Mm-hmm. And if if you can say yes to those, I would say you're religious while still being a non-theist. Does that make you religious? I think so. Um, Now, I I use that word very carefully because I don't want to. I I don't want to insult people who would say John Vervecki is not religious because he's not a
0: Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or or a Buddhist. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, of course, that um, goes back to the the modern conception of religion and religious. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I do practice, and I belong to community. Um,
1: I seek transformation, I definitely have a sense of sacredness, and I have a sense of when that sense of sacredness is about what strikes me as ultimate reality, and that makes sense to me and orients me in a relation to it of love, mutually accelerating disclosure, reciprocal opening, as I talk about. It opens up more as I open up more to it, um, and it affords my transformation. That... Um, I I, I think that would make me religious. I don't know if I worship. I don't think that's something I do. And if worship is an essential, and for some people it is, and I'm just acknowledging that, if worship is an essential part of being a uh, religious person, then perhaps I'm not religious in that sense. Um, I have a lot of criticisms of Gnosticism, but I like April DeConnick's proposal that the Gnostics made this radical religious revolution that we still haven't totally got in the West. And pro- part of the problem is they wrapped it up in a whole bunch of really confusing and at sometimes dangerous stuff, but here's the radical proposal that the idea that human beings are the slaves or the servants of the gods is what Gnosticism challenged. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it really it asked us to reconsider spiritual life as yeah. um, a liberation not just from sin or ignorance, but from a
0: liberation of that sense of the sacred as demanding servitude. Yeah. I myself was spiritually transformed by the Gnostics as my father got promoted on the Gospel of Philip. And I saw profound truth in there. Even though, just like you, I can criticize it. Um, yes. I really see that criticism and and seeing, for example, God as a demagogue or, yeah. or the like, I really understand that. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much for, for your answers. I, I wanted to, That was helpful. <laughs> extremely so. Okay, really. good. Absolutely. I wanted to talk a bit about Wolfgang Smith. Um, ah, excellent. I did a series about him with uh, Karen, Karen Wong. Yeah. She's yes. good, huh? I like Karen a lot, yes. And uh, I really enjoyed your conversations with Wolfgang. I think it's, uh, it's a miracle too. we got him on the internet. <laughs> yeah, me too. I hope I get to
1: talk to him again. I would love it.
0: Yeah, that would be great. I, um, I was wondering what you think of his, his work generally, and I was especially interested in what you think of his ideas about um, evolution because he seems to criticize it quite heavily, but in a very interesting way. Um, and I think you are well-versed enough on his, his ideas to to respond to that. So I I, I want to be clear, I'm
1: ignorant about any specific arguments he's made regarding uh, evolution. Uh, I only only talked to Wolfgang the two times, and the book I read was uh, Vertical Causation, uh, because that's what I knew we were going to talk about. Um, And there, he and I have converging arguments about the need for a leveled ontology, an emanation, emergence picture. Um, So... If you if you if you could present the argument to me, I'll do my best to treat it with respect. What is Wolfgang's argument about
0: evolution? I think his main argument, and I really am not gonna do it justice, but I will give it a quick go, is that it is completely bottom-up. So that there uh, do you yes. understand what where he's coming from in that? Yes, I do, I do. And Jerry Fodor, who
1: is no theist of any kind and dead now, a great cognitive scientist, he's made similar arguments that evolution seems to require something like top-down. Now, he talks about it in terms of a an intentional description. I'm not sure that's what's needed. But the idea that there's a top-down dimension uh, to all of reality, that possibilities have to be organized, and what Fodor, who is no Neoplatonist by any means, uh, called uh, the return of the laws of form. And so his book, What Darwin Got Wrong, is an argument by somebody who's clearly not religious, clearly not a Neoplatonist, clearly part of um, first-generation cog sci, all of this stuff, uh, a, a deep thinker. And I think he wouldn't like the way I'm putting this, but that um, an account of what's happening in evolution isn't purely bottom-up. It also requires a top-down. But I think I think that's just because if evolution is real... It partakes of all of reality, and re- all of reality is a simultaneous, completely interpenetrating, bottom-up emergence and top-down emanation. And uh, you know, and this is this is Whitehead's point. If there's any creativity, any genuine novelty um, going on uh, in how things evolve or unfold, there has to be some way in which. Possibility is structured and organized, so it doesn't come out um, in a cacophonous or ad hoc fashion.
0: Great, thank you so much. um Also, relating to Wolfgang, are you familiar with this three worlds? I don't know if I would call it mythology. I think he calls it an ontology. Ontology. So, sorry, my bad. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and there's uh, there's what I, I
0: can't remember his names. I know the the intermediate one is the corporal world. Corporal. Ah, world. yes. Yes, so you have the uh, aveternal plane. So that's yeah. A-E, aveternal. Corporeal is the, yeah, I think the lived experience. Oh, no, no. The Yeah, you have corporeal, intermediary, av-eternal. That mm-hmm. That's how it goes. And he basically says that everything stems from the aveternal plane. And he doesn't he doesn't equate that to God, but he basically says that the aveternal plane is where there is no time and space. So you could understand the archetypes to be, let's sure. say from the a- eternal plane um yeah i was wondering do you, do you like this this framework at all he says he gets it from from platonism as well as well as he does the it's a neoplatonic it? view and uh, and i think there's something uh deeply right
1: about it um now i have a view of uh platon- the platonic forms that is May, might be different from Wolfgang's, um, uh, deeply influenced by Eurero, Alicia Urero, uh Whitehead, um, and uh, some integrations of Plato and phenomenology by people like Rusin and others. Um, I think of the forms as constraints, the way possibilities are shaped. Uh, this is Euraro's distinction between bottom-up causes and top-down constraints. So you have a whole bunch of chemical causes that cause, sorry, a whole bunch of chemical events that cause the structure of the tree. But the structure of the tree has the shape it does in order to change the probability of a photon hitting a chlorophyll atom. And so that changes the probabilities of the chemical events that make the structure of the tree. And you get bottom-up causation events, and you have top-down constraints, conditions, And you have actuality structuring possibility and possibility structuring actuality. And so I think that the possibilities, and this is Whitehead's idea too, so uh, that when we're talking about eternity, we're talking about possibilities. But what we have to do is give up. And I don't think Whitehead gave it up as much as he should have. That's maybe a difference I have with him and where I agree with Filler. We have to see possibility and actuality as both equally real. And I think... That is what science is pushing towards. We have probability at the bottom of our quantum ontology, and we have relativity at the top of our cosmological ontology. These are relational. They are constraints. They describe real possibilities. They, they basically rule in what is possible and rule out what is impossible and give shape to all of the events within it. Um, and if you understand it that way, which also aligns with, I think, I think, plausible readings of Neoplatonism, um, especially given Filler's work, and also uh, of aspects of Indra's net within various forms of Buddhism and Vedanta, um, I I think that I would then be in agreement with everything that Wolfgang says. And I would argue, as I have argued at my talk I gave on concilience and also in the beginning of the Transcendent Naturalism series, that that's actually what science and... Uh, the need to account for look is what science needs because it's the kind of ontology that science presupposes in order to do the things it does, which of course is something Wolfgang is also arguing with, and Scott Beman is it not Beman? Scott Berman is also Berman. Scott Berman is also arguing and uh, uh, played. uh, What is it? Science and Platonic Objects? I can't remember that excellent book. Um, So there's a lot of people that are coming, uh, you know, Catherine Pickstock and her book, Aspects of Truth. Anyways, if anybody really wants this argument, go to the Consilience Conference talk. There's a talk on my channel, uh, a couple talks on Neoplatonism making this argument. But that's, I think I agree with him, although I have a particular take on how to Make sense of terms like eternity and, and corporeality um, that are consonant with um, an extended naturalism.
0: Thank you. You're welcome. I I greatly uh, enjoyed Wolfgang's entrance into the into the little corner. Let's say I think it's a miracle we got someone uh, mm. so incredibly. I think I think well educated, but also just a wise person, and and someone with such a deep life experience. Um, and a reverence as well for the East, which I think is hard to find sometimes in Christian circles. Yeah, uh, he and I share that. Um, I would like to... uh, Actually, that reminds me. I would like to talk to Wolfgang again, actually. I hope he still does, because uh, I think the last chat he had with Kurt, Kurt asked him, what's next for you, Professor? And he said, what's next for me, my friend, is the great transition. So Yeah, I think he's... uh, Yeah, I think he's probably uh prescient about something yeah yeah absolutely i wanted to speak a bit about your former colleague jordan peterson Um, okay i'm not gonna (laughs) don't worry i will i will mostly speak about jordan in a spiritual sense because i'm very intrigued by him as a figure i think you've alluded to him as the moses
1: (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. i think I, i i speaking mythologically which i think jordan would like i think he always has aspired to be moses and i've aspired to be socrates and that's kind of our fundamental difference
0: yeah yeah absolutely what do you think jordan would benefit most from spiritually speaking what kind of practice sorry embodiment
1: practices and group practices
0: jordan yeah
1: yeah. Yeah. and i I think Rafe kelly's talk with jordan also put this i mean Given my understanding of cognition and the important role of embodiment and embeddedness and inaction and extension um, and and ritual, um, um, I worry, and, and all the non-propositional kinds of knowing, I think Jordan is still prioritizing propositional and conceptual interpretation. And he's seeking a transformation, I think, that can't be wrought by the inferential manipulation of propositions, no matter how skilled one is. And can't give you uh, the new meaning you're questing for without a proper and profound participation of the living body, there. and uh, because I think that's what ultimately meaning grounds out in is how things are relevant to a living body. Um, so I think if Jordan if Jordan would take up some embodied practices and some in that, some group rituals in which he was participating in the collective intelligence of of a distributed network of people. Uh, and I think that could uh, help him uh, considerably.
0: Good. Um, he recently started his uh, ARC movement, Alliance for Responsible Citizenship. What What potential do you see in this movement and what risks do you see coming with it? If you have any thoughts on it at all, you don't have to.
1: I I I I don't know. I mean, I um I had some concerns but some of the people that attended I had my concerns that this was the beginning of a Christian nationalism
0: yeah
1: um which I uh I oppose uh, on philosophical grounds. I think theocracies have a terrible track record <sighs> um and and my my partner is Persian and uh you know her family or extended family have suffered at the hands of a horrible theocracy in Iran. Um, so I, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty convinced, convinced that theocracies are a very, very bad idea. Um, and I think they're idolatrous too. Mm-hmm. And I think Nazism is a form of theocracy, by the way. Um, and so is communism. It's just that the god is a different thing. It's the race or the state. Um, so um. I was worried about that. I know other people are. Um, I talked to some people like Rafe, Kelly, Paul Vanaclay that went, and there was a little bit more. Maybe not that, but that's maybe because then, on the other hand, it's kind of fragmented. It's not mm. clear how all the different pieces of people who were drawn there together um, belong together. And so I am. I'm apprehensive, I, I, I don't, and I don't want to come to any conclusions, especially premature ones. I worry that it's vacillating between being fragmentary, which is dangerous in one sense, and then coalescing around something like Christian nationalism, which is dangerous in another sense. Now, perhaps, you know, because I can very readily be wrong, perhaps it will spin off into a third alternative that I am not foreseeing in my worry, and I would really welcome that if that was the case. Yeah. I am not... I'm not making a prediction, I'm trying to answer you
0: with as much caution and concern as I can. Beautiful. Thank you. Is is unity an important thing to strive for on a worldwide scale? I think unity in the complexification no-
1: notion of unity, which is a system is complex if it's simultaneously highly differentiated and highly integrated, like your body. Um, I think that a simple, to use Durkheim's idea, a simple mechanical solidarity like a block of wood um, can't do very much that's very interesting because it is a simple unity. I think, of course, uh, a simple set of differences without any integration is something that is dying. um, And that is one of my concerns with an overemphasis on diversity in our culture at the expense of understanding Yes, but how it is it? What 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 integrates us such that we work together as a causal whole, um, and therefore can have emergent properties. Uh, a, a disintegrating system lo- is losing properties, and a simple uh, homogeneous unity doesn't have very many properties to begin with. The thing that grows is a system that's
0: simultaneously integrating and differentiating, like a living body. Thank you. You spoke a bit already about Bishop Maximus. I really. Really loved your talks together. Um, it, 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 one of the privileges of my life is getting to know
1: Bishop Maximus. And I we call each other friends. And I hope, I genuinely hope that I never do anything to put that friendship at risk. Um, he is a good person. And I when I went to Aetna and stayed at the monastery there, Good people in a good community living good lives. Um, And there's—I've told Bishop this. If I were to be a Christian, I would be an Eastern Orthodox Christian, uh, because I think think it is more close to non-theism than theism, and because I love the emphasis on ritual and non-propositional knowing. I love the way it is uh, inherited and transfigured. That's his term, Neoplatonism— into something that's vital and vibrant. I, of course, have uh, criticisms a- about um, it as an institution and a history, and I, I believe he does too. Of course, he can't. Uh, he has to be careful because he is a bishop. Like and, and how he voices those criticisms, and, and as he should, that's not a criticism of him. So, um, I think very highly of him. Um, it looks like. There's a good chance that Jordan Hall and I will be going to maybe to Aetna um, next year. And the four of us, Jordan, uh, Bishop, and myself, will be engaging in a bunch
0: of recorded talks together. Thank you. How do you think Bishop Maximus has been impacted by you? I think
1: he paid me a really wonderful compliment. and because he's not somebody who would be given to the vanity of mere flattery or manipulation, I, I take it seriously. I don't know if I agree with it, but I take it seriously, and I aspire to be to be true to it. If it even if it's not completely true of me, he said he thinks I he thinks I'm the greatest living philosopher. Now I doubt that that's the case, but I think what that does is answer your question that he thinks that the work I have been doing has uh, provided a very important philosophical framework uh, for people of faith, and he would admit uh, various kinds of faith, because he knows that I am not a Christian, and I've always been honest about that. I will not be dishonest to people of good faith. I will not. Um, And it's a proper part of how I want to maintain my relationship uh, with him that he and I can always be honest and he's honest with me, he'll challenge me and say, well, this is the part I disagree with you on and and I listen uh, because he's always insightful, but I do think he would say, I'm trying to say this as carefully as possible, that I have integrated cognitive science and neoplatonism with respect to the meaning crisis in a way that he thinks is extremely valuable and He would probably recommend, because he is doing it at least in practice, he's doing it de facto, maybe not de jure, that uh, uh, at least Eastern Orthodox Christians become more familiar with this because of its cogency and relevancy. And so I think that's how my work has impacted him.
0: Just going by what he said and how he's acted. Thank you. I wanted to speak a little about Spinoza. I've recently started reading Spinoza. He lived Excellent. in the city that I live yeah. in. Um Excellent. and I also sent over a picture of Paul Vanderclade the other day to you. <laughs> we visited his grave. Have um, you read Clark Carlisle's book Spinoza's Religion? No.
1: I'll write that down in a That is time. that is the single best book on Spinoza I've ever read, and I've read a lot of good books on Spinoza. Uh uh, bill Roca's book is also really good but claire carlyle's uh, spinoza's religion profound book and especially relevant for people who are interested
0: in spinoza as a
1: guide and exemplar of
0: spirituality thank you what is your relationship to his work how did you get to know his work and and how do you feel about it now oh well spinoza is Spinoza's a proper part of my
1: internal symphony of sages i have uh uh, Socrates is in there, and uh, Spinoza is in there, uh, Sid Hart is in there. Um, yeah, um, I had uh, I had a very prof- profound experience when I was. Uh, so, you when you do the ethics, you don't read the ethics in one sitting. You you do it almost Lexio divina style. And I had, and the point about the ethics, at least my take on it, and I think Claire's argument about participation in God. Uh, bears that out. She seemed to agree with some of the things I presented to her when we (coughs) excuse me, when we talked about this. So I had that experience of sciantia intuitiva where each premise, I could see how each premise fit into the whole argument and how each argument was present in each premise and how that disclosed the nature of reality um, and beyond the one and the many, uh, beyond the subjective and the objective. And and I think, and Zevi Slavin, I think, agrees with this. His his videos on YouTube on Spinoza are some of the very best. I strongly recommend them as well. Uh, Seekers of Unity, Zevi Slavin. And um, also some, oh my gosh, what a wonderful person Zevi is. I hope he and I, he and I are trying to set up a time when he and I talk soon together. Mm-hmm. But what I had is an experience that fits, I think, In this way, and I think this, I mentioned Zevi because I think Zevi would agree with this, and also Claire, that what Spinoza represents for me is a carrying of the Neoplatonic tradition of philosophy as the love of wisdom that transforms your way of life into the Cartesian scientific revolution, and he's trying to preserve that wisdom project that's why it's, the book is called The Ethics. It doesn't mean what we mean today by ethics about just doing the right things. It means the fundamental, what he would even call the blessed life. And he is trying to do that. And so I find he is trying to do what I most aspire to do, which is to keep science and spirituality deeply woven together. Now, he's doing it at the beginning of the scientific revolution, the first scientific revolution. And I see Whitehead doing something very similar. Um, in the Einsteinian and quantum revolutions. And so those two figures, I mean, Spinoza and, I'm, so I'm going to be doing the Philosophical Silk Road and going to various places, and I'm going to be visiting with people, and Spinoza is going to be one of the people I visit. I'm going to go to Amsterdam and talk about Spinoza and the Philosophical Silk Road, although the actual Silk Road didn't reach that way, but there's a spirit there that I'm, I'm trying to get to, uh, because um, I think Spinoza was also trying to point to the God beyond the God of theism and a new way in which we could understand sacredness. And Whitehead will be one of the people accompanying me and on the journey. Um, and so um, I mean this poetically and dramatically and not literally. Um, it'll be my great pleasure to sort of ha- uh, introduce Whitehead to Spinoza and Spinoza to
0: Whitehead and have them talk to each other through me. Good. Thank you so much. I, I greatly enjoyed um. The theological political treatise, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had another short, I think it's like twenty or thirty pages. I'm f- forgetting the name right now.
1: Emendation of the intellect.
0: That's it. That's it. I, I think he writes really and in an entertaining manner. I know it's translated from Latin, of course, yeah. but to me it reads it reads very nicely. I I wanted to quickly ask you a specific question about a chapter called miracles. Um. In nature, nothing happens that does not follow from its laws. That's what he said in this chapter. Do you yeah. view nature and reality similarly, and do you therefore disagree with Jung's idea of synchronicities?
1: Um, That's a harder question to answer because it, there's a lot of stuff that's presupposed. I agree with Spinoza that there are there is no there. There aren't two worlds governed by two different kinds of laws because that ultimately re- makes reality unintelligible and divided against itself, which undermines our primary way of understanding what reality is. Reality is primarily given by our sense of realness and how everything sort of hangs together. Um, although we are, all, it also is given by the fact uh, that we are shocked uh, by the fact that all of our conceptions are always inadequate. So it's it we and Spinoza gets that that's what intelligibility is it's sort of this right it's how everything hangs together but how that ostends and points towards something that can't be grasped so you get this and you know he tells you this right from the beginning of the ethics you know you know the nature of god is such that you know infinite and infinite attributes and we can only grasp two of them two out of infinity is a very small number um and so um i agree with that and i do not and so i don't. If miracles mean something that's ultimately absurd or that involves something like one world with one set of laws intruding sort of, you know, invasive uh, metaphysics into our world, I reject it. Because I think that is fundamentally a tear in being, which is, of course, the classical description of evil. That would be profound evil um, and profoundly um, unintelligible um, and unthinkable. Uh, and so I agree with him in that sense. Now, I don't think that I agree with as reduction. This is where I think he was too much under the influence of Descartes, of all of causation, into sort of billiard ball causation, mm-hmm. I I reject that. Well, yeah. think about well, think about uh, Wolfgang exactly. and vertical causation, and it's and then Whitehead, it's vertical and horizontal, and that's dynamical in in self organizing and both and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So as long as you don't pin me to that billiard ball model of uh, causation, I agree with what I think to be the core of Spinoza's proposal, which is. Um, Miracles fundamentally would represent a tear in being and reality. Yeah. And I think that that's ultimately something that makes how would you, I mean, this is David Hume, how would you possibly get evidence for that? Yeah. I mean, that or, re, or you can't give evidence for it or reason to believe in it. Okay.
0: Thank you. That's very really people good.
1: Will, People will cite Revelation or the Bible, or the Quran, or something. My problem there is, if that's miraculous in, in in the sense of of a world operating to other laws invading ours, then that, of course, is a Terran being, an assault,
0: an invasion, um, etc. Yeah, and what does that make God, also? I think it's yes. a good question to ask. Okay, thank you so much. I, and also,
1: uh, one more question. What, yeah. what This is Spinoza's question. What would bind those two worlds together?
0: Yeah. That to is true. such
1: yeah exactly and that would be more ultimate than either
0: one of the two worlds mm-hmm. i wanted to speak a bit about robert breedlove he's a thinker that uh of course yeah That's i know something. robert yeah, yeah. Had, um, i think you had multiple series with him and one that stands two. out to me is the one you did about david Schindler's
1: uh oh the best book ever written on plato plato <laughs> and one of the great privileges of all the work i've done is i've gotten to know david as a person he's such I mean he says he we, he I said are we friends David and he said well we, we I don't I he said I I I won't extend that term until I've met somebody in person but <laughs> I, but I, I, you know um I think if we do meet in persons we would uh, quickly uh cross that threshold uh, wonderful beautiful person beautiful thinker uh, Plato's critique of impure reason the catholicity of reason uh love in the postmodern predicament astonishingly good books
0: Thank you. Great. I wanted to zoom in a little bit on on this series specifically with Robert, because Robert tries to propose to you a a theory about about money as well and how money influences influences yeah. the world. And I think he made this proposal in quite a beautiful manner to you. I think it was a, a nice, nice way to do that, like it built up in in multiple episodes. And I think he yeah he did that quite well how do you view that proposal? I know it's it's hard to speak about the topic that maybe it's not completely within your expertise but how do you look back on that now which proposal that money is sort of the platonic or
1: Bitcoin is the platonic form of money well or that's the-
0: one and and another was I think how important of a role money plays inside of society and how basically the corruption of of money could lead to a corruption of society I think that's what he presented to you yeah so um Now, I was very careful when I was talking to Robert to
1: repeatedly say I have no expertise in economics. Since then, I have had a former student and who is now a close friend who has been teaching me economics. And I just earlier this week got to meet a colleague of mine who is having a profound influence on me and educating me, Joe Heath, who's an amazing philosopher of economics. And I haven't read it yet, but I have his book, Filthy Lucre, which is about money. Right, I strongly recommend his work, and I would I've recommended to Robert that he read it, and I'd like to get Robert's take on uh, Joe's work. Um, I still think there's something right about Robert's ideas uh, about that money is basically the information signaling within the distributed cog- within the distributed cognition dynamical system called the economy. I think that's a profound proposal, and that there are certain platonic principles we would like to see money have I I think that's right. Um, I'm not like I said I don't I do not know enough and I still do not know enough to say whether or not Bitcoin satisfies that but I understand the more general point that if we understand money not um, just as, a medium of exchange, but a medium of communication and a medium of connection to create the distributed cognition, the collective intelligence of the economy that can solve problems on such an amazing level, you know, and Hayek's idea that economies are this amazing thing where via money, I don't have to know all kinds of things. Yeah. Right, the money conveys all of this to me in a way that enters into my local interactions, without like I buy the coffee without having to know like blah 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 blah. Right, but that's getting conveyed to me now, and and Robert acknowledges this. There's a problem with that. That that's a great gift, right? That's a great gift because it allows me to make decisions locally that are nevertheless in line with global processes. The, the the problem with it, of course, is that it it is a one variable communicator. So there are things being left out. So perhaps it isn't a good thing if what the price of coffee is leaving out is how people in Central America are being exploited by the landowners there. And, and Robert is open to the moral argument there. I know he is, yeah. and I respect him for that. Um, so in that sense, I would say I still agree with the principles although i would like i want to keep learning more about economics from my friend and from joseph heath and then talk to robert again but robert right now is on a journey also of uh, trying to learn a lot of for ecog sci which and he's been he periodically texts me and asks to recommend books i i suspect (laughs) he and i are going to talk again at length and i would i would welcome it great person to talk to great person to
0: talk to good thank you i i'm very interested in this this idea of the corruption of money leading Mm. to let's say the corruption of society but every time that i hear it being proposed i do wonder if it might not be missing something simply because we have lived and we continue to live in periods of great economic wealth let's say and to me it's not obvious that that enhances um, morality or or let's say i I just think it doesn't get us all the way there yeah i'm not sure how you think about that but
1: i i I, just to be fair Robert. Robert has increasingly um, argued that there is another collective intelligence of distributed cognition that runs independently of the economy and money, and, and that's religion. And he thinks that the two of those should have a sort of checks and balance on it. I know he doesn't argue for theocracy or anything heinous yeah. like that. Uh, and so, um, my I. I, I, I think about that. I know he's opposed to fiat currency, but I've, ha- I've heard the argument that there have been times when what was exactly needed was a fiat currency, uh, like especially, looks like one of the problems driving the Great Depression was um, there was an insufficiency of currency available, and that mm-hmm. was actually stymieing things, um, and this is part of why the New Deal sort of helped and things like that. I suspect it's going to turn out to be a very
0: complex. Thing. <laughs> I think Robert would love to speak to you about it. Um, yeah, I think behind every depression and and crisis, there's a lot of nuance and complexity. And yeah. if there's anything that reading economics books tells me is that nobody really knows what's going on, what's going well, on the, exactly.
1: One of the things I like about Joe Heath is Joe Heath has sort of stepped aside because uh, he's a philosopher. He's stepped aside from sort of the pretense that economics is a science. And made the argument that it is much more a philosophical endeavor, but that doesn't mean it's sort of sitting around smoking cigarettes and saying whatever you think. It's a rigorous, theoretical, argumentative, but also prescriptive endeavor. And I'm getting convinced by that meta-argument that we should think of economics more properly as a philosophical endeavor, like Neoplatonism, Mm -hmm. uh, rather than a scientific theory like Newtonian mechanics
0: absolutely i uh i'm greatly inspired by the austrian tradition actually robert is as well and it takes a much more philosophical approach it takes it takes axioms as well which i think Mm -hmm. so it's an a priori more of an approach to to economics as opposed to purely empirical Um, but we can leave that for your conversations with robert (laughs) (laughs) thank you lucas i'm gonna (laughs) switch gears a little bit this is another question from my brother um, he says Paul van der often speaks about his Dutch roots. Can you say a little bit about your Belgian roots which I was not aware of myself? Yeah um,
1: the original pronunciation of my name is Vervok, uh, coming from the village of vok um, there's nothing particularly interesting exciting or important about vok um, and so coming from it is was just merely I guess a way of people naming their origin Mm -hmm. my father's grandparents were farmers and came to canada and took up farming uh my father had a terrific natural talent uh for uh you know being a mechanic and so he stopped being a farmer became a mechanic and other things Um, i never had much interaction with my father's uh parents um, I had a little bit of an interaction with my cousins on my father's side while I was a kid, um, but that sort of withered away. Um, I, 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 so I don't have much
0: connection to my Belgian mm-hmm. heritage in any way. Okay, good. Thank you for answering anyway. I remember Jonathan Pajot first referring to you. I think he also said something like Fervac because he yes. wasn't sure what the pronunciation is, but fair yeah, play that's, to that's, him. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um you have spent a lot of years cultivating wisdom. Do you I love loving wisdom and trying to cultivate it? Yes. I, I must say, and I think like everyone in this little corner agrees that you exemplify it truly. Um, it's uh, it's really a breath of fresh air to see someone that thinks very deeply, but also really carries it out. It's one thing to, to speak about, but another to to really act it out. So first, I'd like to thank you for that.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. Um, A couple, I mean, that's because I aspire to be Socrates. I aspire to be Spinoza, people who both show tremendous integrity. Uh, Please, everyone, remember, um, I, I, I appreciate it, and I really do aspire to live as I speak and speak as I live. And I'm also affected by the Stoics, like Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus. But, of course, I'm also aware of the fact that you all get to see me in very constrained circumstances where it's easy for me to be at my best. Um, perhaps when it's one am and I haven't slept enough and I can't get the dishwasher to work properly. I might not seem so wise uh, <laughs> to, to, to you. Um, so um I appreciate it, and i I want to acknowledge it i and it's encouraging, and I do want to be a person of integrity, but I do ask people to remember that there's a somewhat artificial view of me that is just created by the medium
0: and the way people get to interact with me. Yeah. No, it is very fair. I think uh not a lot of us would remain wise at 1 a.m. when the dishwasher doesn't <laughs> doesn't work. I wanted to speak a bit about the symphony of sages you mentioned that really sparked yes. my interest. Are you are you willing to speak about what the symphony exactly consists of or was it just the the three you No about? Th- those are the three in, the
1: the three S's in my uh, in my uh, and um um Jesus is also in there and uh Lao Tse is in there um probably Plotinus mm-hmm. um, um yeah because Plotinus has this astonishing thing that I don't see anywhere else to the degree I uh, that I see it in Plotinus. When you're reading Plotinus, Spinoza is, is got it too. So that's why I think of Spinoza as a sage. Uh, uh, when you're reading Plotinus, you're simultaneously reading an argument and going through a spiritual exercise. Um, which and I I I wish I could do that. I wish I could write and speak like that. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, th- those are my 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 symphony of sages. People have pointed out that I should uh, I should probably have somebody from the Confucian tradition in there and
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, Vedanta, and maybe the next series in which I do a deeper dive into uh, Mencius, Confucius, and Sankara from Vedanta will result in that. Maybe Sankara will be the fourth S uh, in my Symphony of Sages.
0: Yes. Beautiful. You don't have any uh, like people that are still alive in there? Um. No, um, I think it's
1: dangerous to pronounce anybody as, I mean, in both the philosophical and the religious traditions, yeah. to paint anybody as a saint or a sage until they're dead, uh, because you never know how human beings might turn, yeah, uh, and, um, and I think part of what we're trying to convey with a term like sage, or saint, or enlightened, is that their life was comprehensively be like from the period of their enlightenment or whatever on to the end, um, exact you know, exemplified that kind of shining, um, transformative integrity that you were uh, saying you know that everybody. Um, in some sense I think when they're cultivating wisdom is aspiring to and, yeah. um, and, and so I, I would expect that these people would e- would even still be shining at 1am when the dishwasher is not working <laughs> properly and, uh, and um, but yeah I don't I've met people that I genuinely consider wise I have been introduced to people who have been designated as enlightened um, but I don't I yeah I I don't I don't internalize anybody who's still alive. Yes. Okay. That's very dangerous.
0: Yeah, that's great. Do you think that a sage then has to be more of a symbol than a person?
1: I think they have to be a person who was becoming a symbol in their life so that they become a personal symbol or symbol after their yeah. after their um I think that they, they you know one of my favorite plays is Equus and he talks about Dicehart, the um the psychologist um, talks about why is it that certain in individuals or places or things are these magnets that sacredness seems to draw to and then shine forth. Um, and that I love that play because of his deep he can he confronts it and he's aware of it, but he can't realize it in himself. Mm-hmm. and he is haunted even to some degree tortured by that. and I I, I identify with that. Um, uh, these people, they become symbolic without being inflated, without becoming, idol- without becoming idols or idolatrous themselves. Um, and there's a profound interweaving between who they are and what they say and how they act. And there's a, and people keep returning to their words and their actions and having their lives renewed. Uh, I, I, uh, I don't. I I, sh- I share with uh, with with. I, sorry, I share with. I still don't quite know what that final magnetic magic is that turns
0: somebody from a philosopher into a sage. Okay. Do you see particular value in following one sage as opposed to a symphony of sages, or do you also the other way around? Would be a question, I guess. I specifically argue for. Um, a symphony, because
1: I don't believe there's any panacea practice. I don't believe there's any, and I believe that for some very important, I believe, um, arguments uh, from cognitive science about how cognition works, how self-deception works. There's no panacea faculty. Uh, Every faculty can deceive you. Uh, There's no panacea practice. Each practice has its benefits, but also its dark side. Uh, And what the most you can hope for is a self-correcting system, an ecology of practices. And I think you need um, something analogous to that with your sages. They they have different strengths and weaknesses. Somebody famously said one of the problems we face is that Socrates never cried and Jesus never laughed. Mm. Um, and um, and uh, and I know Jonathan has some big thing about why uh, Jesus never laughed, but I I, <laughs> I think I, I do think I, I mean I don't want to just dismiss it without uh, talking to him about it. But um, I do think that. For all of what I admire in the sages, I think they are nevertheless, right by necessity, incomplete, partial, they can be misapprehended, they can cause self-deception, and so um, I argue for a symphony, and my analogy is I'm a martial artist. And we had for the longest time a lot of the the purity, you just do the one art. And then what happened? MMA came along and the MMA people just keep kicking the asses of the purists. And there's good cognitive scientific reasons for that. There really is. And that's not happenstance. That's not coincidence. That's something to deeply pay attention to. And you should pay attention to it at the level of your cognition, not just at the level of martial art practice. and so I strongly advocate for a symphony of sages. And I know that Pete makes people, you know, oh, John's a syncretist. He's well, yeah. You know what's what everything is? It's a syncretism. Yeah. Like Christianity is a syncretism of Ju- Judaism and um, uh, Platonism and, and, and you know and, and and Judaism. The God of the Bible is a syncretism of El and Yahweh, who were originally two different deities. And and I, rather than that, make me go turn an atheist and say, oh, well, look, it's just, no, it's like, I keep, like, this is heart. What, what is it that keeps drawing these things together? What is draw, what is keeps making us draw these things together and give birth to something beyond? Why do we, why did the ancient Israelites take El, which is in the name Israel yeah. and Yahweh and, and, and bring it together and make something beyond what, like what's going on there? And so I, I that, that argument, that uh, Accused, it's not even an argument usually. I'm just accused of the heresy of syncretism. Um, I think that argument is um, it's it doesn't pay attention to how things function and it doesn't pay attention to the history of how things have emerged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that would be my counter-argument. Now, would I say to people who are at home in a tradition like my friend Bishop Maximus or David Schindler that they should leave? No, of course not. No, of course not.
0: So can they follow Christ while also following, let's say, some of these other sages, or at least trying to get some of their characteristics and their qualities to implement those in their lives? I mean, you don't have to say I'm a Buddhist to, to, I think, appreciate Siddhartha or learn from him.
1: Yeah, I mean... There's a lot of Christians who think so there's there's i I'm going to talk about this in the Philosophical Silk Road there's a whole there's a long-standing decades-old tradition of Zen Christianity, Zen Catholicism, yeah. people bridging between uh, the two and, and you know people uh, like flowing along into that like Thomas Merton and others, uh, Brother Lawrence. Um, so I think at the non-propositional level I which is sort of analogous to the MMA Right. I think that's very possible. Um, One of the reasons why I don't consider myself a Christian, there's a whole bunch of reasons. Some of them are philosophical, some of them are personal. But so this is only one Mm -hmm. um, is precisely, and I've asked this question, uh, I think, to Paul and Jonathan at one point is I owe so much, so much. Of what may, makes my life good and continues to make my life good continuously to Socrates, to Spinoza, to Satara, to Lao Tse, to Plotinus, I would feel disloyal if I had to turn away from them, and a profound disloyalty. Um, and I asked them, "Is it what like what's your response to that?" And I didn't. I didn't get a. I mean. The, I want to be clear; uh, they wrestle with it. This is, this, of course, is the pluralism argument, which is one of the one of the most problematic arguments for me, for anybody who belongs to one specific tradition that claims a kind of exclusivity. Um, but I didn't get an answer that, in any way, motivated me to sever my deep ties of loyalty to Socrates and to Siddhartha, or for me to pretend. That they haven't done, and continue to do everything they do for me.
0: Thank you. I I wanted to speak a little bit about Egypt, and I know it's not your expertise, but I told it's you offline <laughs> yeah. that I studied. I mean, I mean, I
1: have an amateur interest. My son and I are both amateur historians, and I have quite a bit of uh, amateur interest in ancient Egypt, especially the New Kingdom, um, and. Uh, especially uh, some figures like Tutmosis the Third and Ramses the Third. Ramses the Third is a hero of mine, in 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 a lot of important ways. Uh, he's oh, not so. a sage or anything like that. Oh, well, because I mean, the Bronze Age is collapsing, right? And for all kinds of reasons, and the Sea Peoples are marauding in huge armies, and he goes out. You know, all these all these empires—the Mycenaean and the Hittite and the Canaanite civilization—and large parts of Assyria you know everything's being devastated and he goes out and by his own leadership and charisma and military genius he wins two huge battles and he's holding up the bronze age almost single-handedly on his shoulders um, and it's like, wow, that's really impressive. That's a really impressive thing for somebody to do. He, of course, ultimately fails. And so there's a nobility in his tragedy. Uh, he's ultimately even assassinated kind of ingloriously at the end, which makes mm-hmm. he, me like him even more uh, because it's like, yeah, this guy was really, really impressive.
0: Yeah. Thank you. I, I always wonder about gods in, in ancient Egypt. There's such an interesting Way that yeah. they speak of gods. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, 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 and here, and what I just said, like here's Amun Ra, right? Yeah. And you know, this the again, there, here's these originally two separate gods, high gods, Amun, Amun, and Ra, and the Egyptians felt compelled to integrate them together to make this new deity. And of course, did they think they were just making a deity? How do you make a deity? That makes no yeah. sense. It was inventio. They're both discovering and making, but. What is drawing those two together for them so compellingly? part yeah. of its politics and the military, but there's something else at work here. there's something else giving birth to this and th- and my I think that's what's happening right now in the world. I think the sacred is trying to go through a new birth and and it's trying to draw things together at a global level in, in a way it could never do before because it didn't have globalization. Yeah. It didn't have the internet. It didn't have social media. It didn't have YouTube. But now it does. And I, I want to do everything I can to be deeply responsible to that advent as much as I possibly can. Beautiful.
0: I'm actually going to be writing about, um, let's say, a more unity within the Egyptian gods. Let's yeah. say there's a specific papyrus. It's more of a theological papyrus by some priests who, who really write about the different gods as being one yes. under, under one God. And that, that that really interests me. And in general, I find the way this- sp-
1: Please send me, if you have that in digital form, please send me a copy of that document. I would love it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: It's, uh, it's actually over in Lida. the document itself, but I have a digital version. Um, Yeah, when, when for example, Alexander went to Egypt, those soldiers, they were able to to look at the Egyptian gods and say, "Oh, that's just you know that's our Zeus." and that's how I wonder how that that works exactly. Like how do I, how do I understand these gods? are they are they like like lust and anger? Like what is the
1: I think they're transjective. Um, okay. they are ways in which intelligibility emerges about how um our intelligence and the intelligibility of the world. Um, or what is whatever is in the world that makes it intelligible um, co-create uh, relevance and meaning uh, for us and uh, and the thing about it is right yeah, those soldiers go there and everything, but after Alexander's death there's there's a Hellenistic domicide mm-hmm. and a Greek deity and an Egyptian deity are drawn together into a new deity, a new deity, Serapis. Mm-hmm. right which becomes a really important date and and again like it's not only that they could find correspondences they could the, the correspondences would were again this drawing together to give birth to something new very powerful it yeah. fascinates me and it it, it 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 even calls to me about trying to sensitize myself and be on the lookout for it happening right now
0: oh that's powerful the ancients that, are always with us. It seems
1: that's why. That's why I got Amun Ra sitting beside me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm. I'm not a. I'm not a worshiper of Amun Ra, but Amon Ra is points to this very, very ancient. Or like I, I. I. I don't. I don't have the replica yet. There's the the oldest carving uh, we have of something that could plausibly be a spirit or a deity. Um, the lion man, standing vertically like a human being, but with the head of a lion, but smiling, but the genitals or a genital area of a man. And it's so that it's a lion man. And what, like, what, why, why is love the lion and a human being being drawn together? And it's conveying something really powerful and profound right at the very beginning, right at the very beginning.
0: I want to speak a bit more about the ancients right now. I think uh, it's pulling me. I know you've spoken a little bit about Gobekli Tepe before, and I think you spoke about how it seemed to be that, the sacred or some of the religious let's say almost preceded um,
1: definitely i yeah. i think that's well definitely as so far as we can ever make a scientific or historical claim i think the evidence that this is a sacred site a ceremonial site a ritual site that significantly predates agriculture or any kind of long-term sedentary living i think that's now non-controversial i think anybody who thinks this is some post agricultural revolution site is mistaken. And so yes. the idea that, you know, what comes first is agriculture in cities and then we get the emergence of, uh, of you know, these, m- these monumental sacred sites, I think that's just false. Um, and it, it, it goes, to, I mean, and the reason why people don't want it to be true, at least some people, is it goes against a kind of Marxist reading Uh, uh, of history or even a capitalist reading of history that economics drives everything. And it's like, Nope, didn't, didn't, that's not how it happened. This other thing is going on um, and it drew people together. And that drawing of them reliably together might have led to them starting agriculture. So we might have got the causal story, which we have done so many times exactly the wrong way around.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's, I mean, you propose a theory and then usually it's wrong at some point. Oh, you every,
1: yeah, almost every theory turns out to be that Yeah, way. but human beings regularly confuse cause and effect.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I wanted to speak a little bit about death, if you don't mind, not in a light way, of course. <laughs> sure. um, I think in your Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series, you said that very likely experience ends at like, brain death, let's say. I think that's, I hope I'm not mistaken here.
1: No, Uh, that's fine. Like complete brain death. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that, well, because we are so inaccurate and even perhaps inept at saying what the neural correlate of consciousness is, we have made mistakes in saying, well, this area isn't working, so the person's unconscious. And we found out that we were wrong. So I would have to say something like comprehensive, complete brain death. Only at that stage do I think
0: it's safe to say
1: that consciousness has ceased to exist. Yes.
0: So I'll get a little personal here. I had a psychedelic experience and you know, you can't really trust these propositionally as I think you.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You showed
0: pretty clearly. Um, But you know, here I was. To me, it was really transformational. I won't denigrate it anyway, but I came out of it with a very particular propositional claim and it was the following. I felt like I remembered where I came from And I felt a certainty that I'd never felt before in my life that I would come back there. And I know, you know, the literature that for a lot of people, their fear of death completely ceases for me that, that happened as well. And I wonder if there might be, maybe not in the way that that you might describe where the brain dies and the experience or the consciousness is gone. I, I wonder if that, I don't know that that's that consciousness or that experience might somehow. I don't know how, (laughs) and I know it's, it's maybe not the most productive thing to speculate about this, but it's just an indulgence of mine. Might that merge or something? Because I know, for example, Bernardo Castro speaks about this being like, you know, I don't think it ends there because, you know, people have NDEs and they have, you know, very spectacular um, experiences. And so, yeah, I'll give you a opportunity to respond.
1: The problem with the NDE research is all of the attempts to have any evidence that people are actually floating free from their body, like, you know, in operating tables, you have things that contain pictures that can't be seen from above and they can only be seen from above. Did you float above the table? Yeah. What was in the boxes? Oh, I don't know. Right. All the attempts to find any evidence of accurate uh, uh, perception that would indicate that you actually were physically separate or moving, have failed to find any evidence. Now, that's absence of evidence is not the same thing as evidence of absence. I get that. Of course. Uh, but it does weaken the claim to say, well, the NDAs are just non-controversial evidence uh, for some sort of post-mortem existence. Um, uh, I know Bernardo has much, uh, I have a lot of respect for him, a lot. Yes, he yes. He as independent arguments for sort of analytic idealism, that and I, I know he's not basing everything on NDE, so I'm just I'm just addressing that. Yeah, I, I I would put another proposal to you that I'd I'd like you to consider. Um, that is, I think I think the issue is your fear, of, our fear of death, and the Epicureans and the Buddhists, uh, very different traditions, ah. have a lot of practices in which th- they claim, and. I believe them because I believe I am close to this state, which is not the same thing as enlightenment or wisdom or anything bullshit like that, um, in which you no longer fear death, and in fact you start to realize the prospect of of personal immortality as a horrific kind of egocentrism um, in a profound way. So let me just finish. And when And I think, I believe that these experiences can alleviate your fear of death in in a profound way that's not propositional because you can't capture your fear in the propositions. Ivan Illich always knew he was going to die the way that people know that two plus two equals four. But one day Ivan Illich knew he was going to die. You can't capture it in the propositions. But I think the reverse is the case. When you are free from the fear of death, a profound liberation, you also can't express that in propositions. And the only thing the propositional part of your brain can do is make a con- propositional conclusion. Well, that must mean I don't die. Um, and I think that because we know that that part of the left hemisphere that likes to interpret everything propositionally uh, and off, uh, often engages in convincing confabulation. I did that. I made that move. Like, Like, you know about the experiments. Okay right? And where, you you know, you show something to the split brain people, you show it to the right hemisphere, and and the right hemisphere, it's a joke, and so the person laughs, and, well, why are you laughing? The left hemisphere didn't see it. The left hemisphere immediately confabulates with absolute certainty. Oh, I was just thinking of somebody that, you know, it's it's like that confabulation machine, um, I think, um, often rushes in a lot to give us, with uh, inappropriate levels of Certainty, a propositional conclusion for something that it that does not properly belong as a propositional conclusion, and because I think you can, and I think the task is not to pursue immortality. We have known this since Gilgamesh. We have known this since Achilles, right? Um, but to actually find liberation from it.
0: Yeah, no, I agree wholeheartedly. I I think I feel very similarly about it i i guess i'm also very comfortable with me dying let's say uh my my being my identity my ego i i do think that perhaps as in the vedic tradition that that nirvanic option is maybe more than a loss of self also uh, a uniting with the one and I couldn't right. say much more about that, but <laughs> that's and, kind and of how
1: I view it. Spinoza has that too, right? He has that there's a there's eternity is written onto the human heart, um, yeah. and I and I think eternity is something that you can become one with. But I think the mistake is to understand eternity that is. And here I'll you know I'll um, defer to Wolfgang. Eternity is a vertical matter, yeah, uh, and immortality is a horizontal matter. And I think you do achieve identity with that. Um and as soon as you try to bring into that ego's way of thinking, it turns into a horizontal Of course, proposal. of course.
0: Yeah. 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 I so felt, it's it's yeah. atemporal, let's say. And, yeah, and not that's spatial. Right. That's right. That's how I experienced it as well. I felt I think that's I what where also partially the conviction came from because I felt like I was outside of time and space and it wasn't really me anymore and I was fine with that. Um <laughs> That's great. But, <laughs> but yeah um, sorry.
1: So I hope and I really do hope that I hope I've not in, I I hope I've actually reinforced that for you and not undermined it in any way. Oh, just,
0: absolutely not. Good, good. I don't absolutely. want to do that.
1: I mean because I, I I I seriously believe there are completely legitimate ways in which philosophically and based on good science we can and perhaps using psychedelics alleviate people of the fear of death without making any Potentious claims about knowledge of immortality or the promise of immortality
0: amazing um, i think we're running out of time i want to be respectful of it i think you have
1: i have a meeting right away yeah
0: yes. i was i was gonna say i want to thank you so much for your time and all that you've done for for me and everyone in the corner i know it can be quite weird to uh meet people that have listened to you for so long <laughs> and you haven't known them but it's been okay. a pleasure so thank you for that
1: Great pleasure. Let me know when this is it. Where are you releasing this on a podcast? Oh, very or- quickly.
0: I will release it, uh, I think, this Sunday. So I'll send it over to you.
1: Yeah. And let me know. And I'll, I'll let people know that it's there.
0: Thank you so much, John. Have a good day.
1: Take care. Take care, Lucas. Great pleasure meeting you in, sort of virtually in person.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. See you.